Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Ibn Abi Umar podcast. This is your host, Umar Usman. As you can probably tell, we've been on hiatus. Uh, the Ramadan break essentially turned into a summer break altogether. Uh, but inshallah, the podcast is now back. I've got some episodes lined up that I hope you guys will enjoy. Today's episode is with Ustad Justin Parrott from Yakin Institute. And this was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed talking to him about the concept of information literacy. And to put it another way, it's talking about how to determine or how to research what's true and what's not true, how to identify experts. And he's written a paper for Yerkeen Institute on the same topic that we talked about in quite a bit of detail. But the thing that he mentioned was that this is one of the, if not the most important skills that any Muslim can have, which is information literacy in the digital age. And that's precisely because of how much disinformation we're bombarded with on a day-to-day basis, not just politically, socially, the general news, but Islamically as well. And so hopefully you'll get a few tips uh, and some pointers as to how to navigate uh, this new era, this new, this new post-truth era that we live in. Uh, and so with that, we'll dive right in. We've got links to all of Ustad Justin's uh, social media and his articles and all of that in the show notes. You can check that out below. And as well, please make sure you subscribe to the email list where I send out updates on new articles and podcasts and all that good stuff at ibnabiumar.com slash newsletter. And if you've got any comments, hit me up on Twitter at Ibn Abi Umar. Hope you enjoy the episode. Assalamualaikum, everyone. We're joined with, but joined by uh, Ustad Justin Parrott from Yakin Institute. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Assalamualaikum warahmatullah. Good to be here. Thank you. All right, Jalakul Khair for joining. So we kind of started this conversation, um, I believe, on Twitter, looking at a paper that you'd written for Yakin Institute on information literacy for Muslims. And mm-hmm. reading what you wrote, I think you had mentioned something along the lines of information literacy being one of the most critical skills that a Muslim can master in the 21st century. And that really is Muslims, but just all people. Sorry, all people. Yeah. It's a human, it's a human need competency. Yeah. Yeah. I I think we've seen that with our elections now. (laughs) So, (laughs) right. But it, it really struck me because I think it's something that there's almost a paradox where we have access to so much information that we automatically assume every opinion that we hold is informed and factually correct. Right. Yeah. Actually, so, more information makes it more difficult in a way. Yeah. So this is kind of start off with what, what got you interested in this topic of information literacy and why do you feel that it's so essential for us to learn about? Yeah, so uh, the way I started um, is that I'm, a re- I'm the research librarian for Middle Eastern Studies at New York University in Abu Dhabi. So um, part of my job is to teach information literacy to undergraduate students. And I've also written and presented a little bit about that in the library world. Um, and so while and I always thought it was important, but as I was, uh, as I was thinking about it, and I was uh, you know, writing notes for a, a workshop, um, 
At the same time, I was reading, um, I was reading about Usul al-Fiqh and I was looking at this text, uh, Al-Waraqat fi Usul al-Fiqh by Al-Juwaini. And I, I was surprised that there was some overlap in the concepts there. Um, and then as I thought about it more and I'm studying more fiqh and everything, I found that a lot of those concepts, there, there was, there's like parallel concepts. So uh, I wanted to write a paper that presented the, uh, the concepts of information literacy, at least according to the American Library Association, but in the verbiage and in the context of, of our religious studies and fiqh and um, all, all the things that we learn about in Islam. So that's kind of where it came from. It's, a, it's like a sort of a merging of uh, my uh, Islamic work and then my professional work and trying to uh, draw parallels between them. So the texts that you're referencing, those are classical works written, obviously, like many, many years ago. What did you find mm-hmm. in those works that's still relevant to the information age where we have so much proliferation of information at all times? Uh, so uh, one of the things that stuck out was the way that al defined knowledge. So he defined knowledge as apprehending something as it exists in reality. And believe it or not, that's actually uh, a, a kind of controversial position to have because um, we're, we're sort of in this most postmodern age and things are very relative and people don't think you can come to truths about uh, God or about other things and then people are becoming cynical because there's a lot of fake news misinformation there's a lot of unclear things and it's just it, it's, it's a lot of effort to kind of sift through all of that so um, just just understanding the that knowledge is based in truth I think just getting accepting that 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 is still true for us today I think it was really important that was the quote that kind of set me off like as I was uh, writing this and then um, I was looking at the, at the, the, the way we verify Hadith. So, um, we just don't take anybody's word for it, uh, who, who brings a Hadith and all the different narrators. Um, you know, you have to look at every narrator in the chain, you know, and what is their authority or what is their credibility as a narrator of Hadith. And that was the, uh, probably the biggest, uh, parallel was the way that we would, our classical scholars would approach Hadith sort of the way we, uh, we, can, we can approach information in sort of the same way. So um, by looking at the sources, looking at where it's coming from, um, looking at the backgrounds of those people, of, the, of the, our, our information sources. Um, and so uh, why is this important? Because um, as, as we said earlier, the uh, uh, information literacy is going, is going to be recognized, if it's not already by everyone, as a key competency of the 21st century. So human beings had to learn to read and write to survive. We are going to have to learn how to use information and to use information systems and technology in order to continue living, uh, continue progressing uh, in our civilization. And there's a lot of effort. Yeah, go ahead. So one thing you mentioned, the, the definition of knowledge as understanding a concept as it exists in reality. What's the difference, and I think this is maybe a critical uh, point of understanding, is what's the difference between knowledge and information? And yeah, we'll, we'll start there, then I have a follow-up question. Yeah, absolutely. So I make that distinction in the paper. So knowledge is, you know, as we said, it's to comprehend, this is the legal definition of knowledge, it's to comprehend 
an issue or a fact as it actually exists in reality. So your understanding of it is, uh, mirrors exactly what as it exists in reality. Um, so you know something is true and you conceive of it in the truest way, but the information can be true and it can be false. So uh, khabar is like a report. You know, there's akhbar uh, from uh, different companions, different scholars, and those may or may not be authentic. So information can be true and it gives you an accurate conception of reality. It can be misinformation, which is um, somebody who passes along the information and it's incorrect, but they didn't intend that. So the way I see that a lot these days is people share quotes um, in, in meme form on social media and they just share that stuff. Right. And, you know, they didn't fact check it or look anything and I go back and look for the quote and it's it's not an authentic quote or it's there's no source for it. So. And people are just sharing that information. And so it reminded me of the hadith um, that the Prophet said, translation, which means, it is enough sin for a man to repeat everything he hears. So it's important for us to, to, to be able to identify misinformation or ambiguous information so that we are not misforming others and we're not being misformed ourselves. And then uh, also there is disinformation, and that is, when somebody is deliberately falsifying information and putting it out there on social media, on the internet, and, and to mislead people in, with a malicious intent. So, um, you, you know, there are, there are a lot of bad actors out there who use social media and with the intent to deceive others. And that kind of information is out there. And we, won't, we don't want to fall victim to that. So you laid out components of information literacy. And... Mm -hmm. If, if I'm correct, there's essentially four things to highlight. So your attitude toward learning, assessing mm -hmm. the authority of information providers, employing the right research methodology, and engaging in information sharing in scholarly communities. Um, if we can tackle that first one, the attitude toward learning. What is the sure. correct attitude toward learning? And, and kind of hand in hand with that, I think, you know, you've touched a lot on misinformation and disinformation. I think mm -hmm. for a lot of people that starts to feel overwhelming. Like what's the point of even trying to learn something if I'm going to be bombarded with everything that's wrong and it might disincentivize someone to even try to learn something. Uh, yeah. Um, it will. So one of the realities is that we're, we're not going to be able to research everything and to know everything completely in an original form and do our own original research on every sort of topic. We're going to have to find authorities that we trust that are we think are credible or the most credible and we have to take their word for it. And this goes for medicine, this goes for science, this goes for all kinds of fields, new fields, fields that are going to be invented in the next 10, 20 years. You know, so being able to find the credible voices is, is what big, a big part of this. It's not necessarily doing your own original research. Um, but about the disposition. So, um, so I was basing this on the American Library Association. The ALA has the Information Literacy Framework, and this is the uh, this is the way they they recommend that academics, librarians, uh, in like in my field, how we would teach these concepts to students. And they have what they call our, our dispositions or attitudes um, that a, a good information literate student and researcher would have. And so I, I drew some parallels with those, and I just listed these here. So the number one is lifelong learning. And I actually found a lot of um, uh, reports from the Celeb, um, 
in Ibn Abdu'l-Bar's book about knowledge, about how they would just continuously learn. There's always something more to learn. There's always something more, more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge. And they would, they would say they would never stop learning, right? So there's always more to learn. That's something that we need to realize is that you, um, learning is not something where, oh, I've learned, you know, a satisfactory amount of, of Islamic knowledge or in the, my chosen field, and I'm just going to sit and not learn anymore. And when you do that, that's when your knowledge declines. So you need to be continuously learning. So, so having that attitude of a lifelong learner, then having an attitude of intellectual humility. So I, I liken this to um, the way even Rajib defined this in uh, his commentary in the 40 Hadith, that humility is to accept the truth from whoever brings it, whether that person's young or old. So if a person accepts knowledge, accepts uh, information that is accurate, whatever the source is, if they accept that, that's humility. And then a person who rejects the truth uh, because they don't like the source, that's arrogance. So on, on the topic of, you know, the lifelong learning. So like you said, we can't research everything and learn everything. Right. Well, how would you recommend someone to kind of know where to be a lifelong learner and then mm -hmm. where there's topics that maybe you need to actually stop learning or stop mm -hmm. diving into because it's going to distract you from learning about another subject more deeply. Yeah. So, um, I think everybody's personality is a little bit different. So, um, so me, for example, um, when it comes to Islam, what I like to study is I like to find the Hadith. I like to source the Hadith and, um, and I like to relate those to ethics and theology and make, you know, practical uh, re religious practice and things like that. Um, I know that I'm never going to be an independent authority on the, the, uh, the criticism of narrators. So I'm never going to be able to look at the Isnad um, and be able to make an independent judgment about whether it's Sahih, Hassan, or whatever. So I take the opinions of the scholars, so Suyuti, al Arnaut. Um, all of these other scholars, I take them as my authority and you know, I'm using them and relying on their expertise to tell me about the chain. And then once we've found a chain that is authentic, then, uh, then we can work with it. Or we found a, a text that's authentic, we can work with it. But everybody has a different um, uh, personality. Everybody has different interests and skills. And so some people are in science. So if you, you're going to be a doctor or general practitioner, you know, that, that that's a field of medicine and you go deep into that you want to be excellent in that field and then you learn islamic topics as is appropriate you know the, the amount that you need to know to, to be able to practice well uh as a be a good muslim and and everything's different you know um some people are good engineers you want to be a really good engineer you want to be literate in the information ecosystem of engineering or medicine or science or um law or uh, any of these things so it depends on the, the personality, really. And then um, I think once you, once you see what's out there and you know how to evaluate sources and everything, then you can kind of tell for yourself, well, I can't really go much deeper into this topic. What about, you know, what about um, social media issues, particularly for people that are kind of in the quote-unquote Muslim space online, right? And so every time you take out your phone, you log into Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, you start seeing all these shares on a particular topic. It might be a 
crisis in another country. It might be a political situation at home. It might be an esoteric theological debate or, you know, there's any number of a dozen different things that all seem pertinent, timely, and important at any given moment. How, how should someone navigate that? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And I noticed that myself because I, you know, I, I, I pull up Twitter and you know, there's three or four things that they're important that people are talking about, but I am not necessarily in a position to, to, to know exactly what the right stance is on any of those issues. So if we're talking about issues in other countries, you know, in other countries, I don't speak their language. I don't know their, how their politics work. I don't know a lot of things about them. Um, you know, and I'll make draw for those Muslims, but I don't know maybe exactly what they should be doing. And maybe I shouldn't give an opinion on that, you know, but maybe there, you know, if I know what's going on in America, maybe I am really well, well informed because I'm from there and I can, I can give a, a decent opinion about what's happening there. But this, this is a part of, uh, this is what is dangerous uh, spiritually in the sense of uh, that social media can be dangerous is because uh, social media, uh, it, it, it wants you, it's designed for you to have an instant opinion. You know, you see this, you react, you see this, you react, you see it react. And then um, being an information literate person though, it makes us have, we need to step back, right? And we need to say, okay, well, we're, do I really know that this event happened? Did it really happen this way? What were the, what were the biases of the people involved? What are the biases of these information sources? And there's a lot of questions you would ask people, you know, what's the agenda behind this information? Or did they really say it like that? Um, so I'll give you an example. Uh, this has happened on Twitter. I don't know if you uh, uh, saw this, but um, there was these, uh, these students in Washington, D.C., and they had their Donald Trump hats on. And, um, and, and a Native American protester came up to them and then there was this really obnoxious like one minute clip of yeah. these teens. They were like, it looked like they were heckling the guy. Um, and, you know, it made really, everybody really upset. I saw it and I was immediately upset at it. Uh, and then, you know, then we saw the, the, the clips that happened later and it was like, well, you know, uh, it wasn't really exactly the way people were framing it. Like they weren't really, they were kind of just all in, in the same area. And, um, uh, you know, and they actually were, they've, the, the parents of the cho those children have filed a lot, or those teens, they filed a lawsuit because uh, they're being doxxed and things like that. So the, this is an interesting um, event because there, there was this clip that was sort of decontextualized and it was put into this, narrative that's already out there and so and then it went viral and a lot of people you know were denouncing the teens and they wanted them to be kicked out of college and they wanted you know to just throw the hammer on those on those kids um and then when you really looked at it you know there was other people that were heckling them you know i'm not defending donald trump here i'm just saying that people immediately reacted to the clip and it was very emotional and it, and it fit into this narrative that we already have in our minds um, and then people, uh, you know, had very, very strong responses to those kids in a very personal way. So it's and almost then, like when, when we come across an, uh, information of any type, whether it's a meme yeah. or a video or an article, and it fits into our pre-existing idea or our point of view, 
we're more receptive at just accepting it and acting on it as opposed to maybe being critical. Yeah, that, and that's that's a basic psychological thing that we, we've already have an bias. confirmation bias. Yeah, exactly. And social media just eats that up, right? And it's hard to turn that off because that's that's part of our psych. Like that's part of our psychology. You know, we as human beings do that. We look for evidence that already supports the things we believe and already supports the narrative that we have in our mind. So, um, you know, there are a lot of examples. I didn't have, I don't have any others up top of my head, but I see this all the time. And, and uh, I have to catch myself. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Like, did they really say it? What was, you know, what was, you know, what was really going on there? Um, and that's every day there's a new outrage on there. So um, learning to take a step back, okay. And having to deal with the ambiguity of not knowing maybe exactly all of the details of this, uh, event or this meme or this claim or whatever, and then being able to uh, to look into it later, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that that's a key point in 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 the dispositions of information literacy is being able to accept ambiguity. So you have to accept for the fact that um, you know I might not be able to understand this subject all the way yet, or and I might we might not be able to understand what's happened to this person. Another thing that's happening right now is the death of uh, Jerry Epstein. And people think that looks very suspicious and it fits into these conspiracy narratives that are already there. And so people think Bill Clinton did it. And people think Donald Trump did it. And people think other people did it. And there's a lot of conflicting claims and we don't even know what's happening with the police. And we don't know. And the, the, even the news articles are, are have conflicting information. And so, you can't really make a judgment about what's actually happening as this thing is unfolding. You know, you're going to have to wait for all the information to come in. Does that right. make Yeah. And it, it's funny. So have you seen this documentary on Netflix called The Great Hack? I heard about it, but I haven't seen it yet. You should, I think you'll, you'll probably enjoy watching it. I would, I would recommend it. But it, it talks about yeah. the Cambridge Analytica, you know, thing with the Trump election and, it went into detail as to how they targeted people and the type of messaging they gave them to, you know, change their mind. And they had mm. something called, they categorized people as persuadables. So they knew that these were people that if they targeted them with the right type of material, that they could change their mind and sway their vote essentially to get the outcome that they wanted. And then there was something else in the news recently that the UK, I think it was part of their prevent program, had set up like this online campaign that was meant to target Muslims and, you know, get them to act or think a certain way. But the, so that whole setup for this question, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you, you've spoken a lot about, for example, Hadith methodology, right? Where there's a validation and verification process. And it's very scientific mm -hmm. when you get into the details as to how they assess a chain and the narrators and uh, there's a precision involved there. Mm -hmm. um, we also have, of course, the eye and the Quran in Surah Al-Hujurat that says when uh, a fasik brings you news, when a sinner brings you news, verify it first because you don't know what the consequences would be. Yeah. How does someone actually employ a research methodology that's both effective but also efficient given the number of things that we're dealing with at any given base, at any given time, right? Like I could take the one, you know, I could take that one Trump video 
and I could maybe spend a couple of hours researching it and arrive at, oh, okay, this is actually the big picture. But there's an opportunity cost in that by coming to the truth on that one topic, I don't have time to investigate these other four or five things. Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to figure out what's important to you, what's important for uh, your religion, your community, and your worldly affairs, and then you have to stick to those things. And a lot of the things that we just we won't have time to research, and we won't have time to form an opinion on things that are happening all over the world. You know, I just say I just make dua for Muslims and believers and innocent people in this very general way, and I, I wish them all the best, but I, I can't support campaigns that are happening in some of the foreign countries because I don't know, I have no idea what's going on. I don't speak their language, you know? Um, how, so, how do you research an item though? So, you know, now when you yeah. use something online, what is a research methodology that someone should have when, when approaching any given topic? Okay, so there's, there's a general kind of research methodology that I can outline and then there's specific like journalism research methodology and that's a whole different thing and I wouldn't consider myself an authority on that. Um, but, you know, sifting through news and then researching another topic is a, a they're kind of different, different areas. So let's just talk about the general part first. So um, I, and this is what, the, way, the way I learned it um, when I was doing my master's degree for the University of Wales in Islamic studies. Uh, they, they, so first of all, when you're starting out and you're researching any topic, you have to find out what's the available knowledge on that topic already. So you go to reference works like encyclopedias and handbooks and uh, specialized dictionaries and things like that. So um, when we're doing Islamic studies, like if I want to study a fifth topic, um, first of all, I need to know the, the terminologies, what we call controlled vocabulary. I need to know what are the terms that people are using. Then I can go to a, a, um, a reference source like Mosu'at al-Fiqhi al-Kuwaitiya, right? The, the Kuwaiti Fiqh Encyclopedia. And they kind of lay it all out. These are the opinions of the four schools, right? And so then now I have this general idea of what they have, what, they are, what their opinions are on this topic. And then you can go into uh, the works of the specific schools and see what, what are the different opinions and what scholars have written about that. So you start with uh, the roots, so usul, you start with the usul, what are the basic fundamentals of that topic, and then you go to the branches, the furu, and then you, you kind of branch out that way. So you need to look at um, learning as a systematic activity. You start with the, the base of knowledge, and then you go into the secondary and more um, complicated and more detailed topics. Um, another point of this is that uh, all of these different fields have, have a peer review process. So in Islamic studies, for example, we're talking about Western Islamic studies, uh, a scholar will write a book, several people will review that book and, and put their book reviews into journals. So you will find somebody wrote a book, they're making claims about Islam or Islamic history, um, you know, people think the book is great and they support it two people thought it was bad and they didn't like this part of it and they're pointing out the mistakes and so um, and this happens as scholars respond to each other so one of the key points of information literacy um, the way I teach it is is in what I got from the ALA is that scholarship is a conversation so um, 
uh, scholarship is not something that's sort of solidified and then it's finished, right? Right. I mean, in the basics of Islam, we're like that, but but uh, a lot of other things, it's not like that. So uh, the way scholarship is created is that somebody comes out, makes a claim, provi- provides evidence. Other people read that, peer review it, and then respond to it. So there's a great, um, ex- the great example in our history, um, and I didn't put this in our, in my paper, but um, I was looking at the um, Imam Shafi and how he wrote uh, Arisala. So that was one of the first major works on usul al-fiqh. And so there had not been uh, major written works, extended arguments on in usul al-fiqh before al-Shafi. And now all of the people that came after Shafi were responding to him. So you had people that are Hanafiya, they, they didn't like him for this reason, and they would respond with their evidences, and then other people would support Shafi and said, oh, he's right with these evidences. And then that's how the discipline of usul al-fiqh developed, because Shafi, he put this major work out there, and then people are responding and responding and responding and responding. And so that's, and that's how the madhahab have formed, because you know, one, one madhab, one school of thought, they, they put out their views, they put out their evidences, and then other schools of thought will respond and they say, we agree with this or we don't agree with that. Um, and if you, if you look at, for example, the Muwatta, according to the narration of uh, Imam Muhammad al-Shaybani, so he, would, he narrated the Muwatta from Imam Malik, and he was the student of Abu Hanifa, and he would say, we agree with this. This is what Abu Hanifa said. We agree with this. That's what Abu Hanifa said. And if he didn't agree, they, he would say that we have a different opinion. So, uh, another, yeah. So this, this system works really well when there's a clear cut, not necessarily like a hierarchy, but it's well known that Imam Shafi is an authority, right? Or that this mm-hmm. person is the teacher. And mm-hmm. I mean, literally at that time, like the whole world is, traveling to go sit at that person's feet and so it's mm-hmm. very well recognized that this is the authority this is the go-to person mm-hmm. i think one of the issues that we deal with now is that because of social media platforms everyone is an authority without peer review and so yeah. if you amass a certain number of followers or you amass a certain level of you know influence um almost regardless of what a more qualified person may say you still retain that level of authority. And there's something really interesting that you mentioned in the article uh, that I wanted you to maybe comment on and go a little bit deeper. But you said that the tradition of Islam foreshadowed this, you know, modern information literacy concepts and classical scholars prioritized ethics and manners and systematic curricular learning. What was it about the ethic? Because I think the ethics and manners is a really interesting part. What was it about prioritizing Mm -hmm the way that someone conducts themselves as such a core component of information and knowledge? Yes, so there are several um, reports from the righteous Salaf, from the righteous predecessors, um, that they would, they, would, they would go to the, the sheikh or the imam and they would learn their adab and they would learn their akhlaq and then that's what they focused on and before they dove into the sciences of hadith and, and these kind of things. And I'll give you my take on it. These reports are there. I cite them, and there's more that I didn't include. Um, but my understanding is that um, when you get into the higher levels of scholarship, so higher, higher levels of hadith, higher levels of aqidah, higher levels of fiqh, all these different subjects, you get into really complicated um, topics. And 
you really have to have patience and you have to have to be well-spoken and you have to be forbearing to be able to uh, talk to other Muslims who are going to be challenging you on those issues. So, um, so what I've seen is that, you know, there, there are a lot of young Muslims, they're studying Aqidah, they're studying Fiqh, and they're getting into these, um, these really, uh, that are kind of secondary issues and they're, they're, they're bringing up debates about uh, Kalam and, and things like that. And um, they don't really have the very good manners to be able to discuss these things. So they're, they're out there and I've, I've seen this many times. People are out there, they're defending Islam or what they believe is Islam and the Sunnah and then they are using profanity to do that. And they're using people and they're calling people names and things like that. And that, that just doesn't, that doesn't um, do well for those conversations that, you know, when, when, when somebody's too rough, uh, when somebody's not patient, you know, that, that those shuts down the discussions and, you know, that doesn't change people's minds. And then people are just yelling at each other. And then this arguing over the Dean, it, it becomes a fit number for people because then, Oh, you know, these people are arguing. I don't even really know what I'm supposed to believe anymore. And then, you know, it, 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 it may puts people to trial, you know? Um, so, uh, I mean, that's, that's my take on it. I think that's why that they, they focused on manners first and ethics first. And I, and, and just because ethics is just, it's part of the core of the religion. Like even though Qayyim said that, you know, the, the, the religion is ethics, akhlaq. The, the religion is adab, right? Because it's- yeah. And it reminds me, and I don't remember where this quote is from, but it was something along the lines of, that when you're seeking like a fatwa or a ruling, then seek it from someone whose character that you trust. Uh, not necessarily that this is the most intellectually, you know, the most intellectual prowess or whatever, uh, or that this person is from the same school of thought or this and that, but it was the person whose character you trust because they'll give you something that's for your benefit, essentially, or that a, a litmus test or a marker that when you're overloaded with all these people with different opinions, a way for someone to simplify that process is which of these people conducts themselves in the best way. Then that becomes someone that I can trust and go to and learn from. Exactly. And I think that's, that's, um, this isn't part of the secular information literacy curriculum, but if for us as Muslims, that's very important because um, that's how we can evaluate if that person is credible or trustworthy. You know, if they have bad manners, if they're using profanity, when somebody uses profanity, that means there's a there's a there's a disease in their heart that they haven't fixed yet, because what comes out of the mouth, what comes out of the tongue, is is a reflection of what's in the heart. So if they're using very harsh, cruel words, that means there's something in their heart that they haven't taken care of yet. But so we need to look at people's manners and look at the scholar Muslim scholars' manners, and that's not the only thing because we need to know where people studied and have they contributed to the field and. Do they have professional experience? Like, has this person been an imam for 10 years, 20 years? Um, has he been recognized by other people, or other scholars like that? All of those things kind of go in, but um, manners is definitely really important. And I think that's one of the key signs uh, to tell when you need to stop listening to somebody if they, if they are speaking very harshly or they're, um, you know, there's a lot of anger that's unnecessary and um, 
and they're not able to disagree with people in an amicable way, with other Muslims in an amicable, amicable way, I don't think that people should be listening to folks like that until they correct their character. Um, yeah. What, you know, one of the other things with kind of knowing who to listen to is this idea of, does this person have an agenda? Are they sponsored or funded in a sense by a particular organization or someone with a certain ideological leaning? To what extent do you investigate those types of things and how? And like, how much, how much does it affect the validity or veracity of what someone's saying? Um, that's one of the things that you need to look at when you're looking at any information source. You want to know um, what are their credentials and what is their funding and what, is their, what are their implicit and explicit biases, if you can detect them. Um, because every person is biased. Uh, we all are born into circumstances, and that means we have a certain perspective other people are not going to have. And so I'm biased. You're all biased. We want to be objective as we can, but we can't help but view things from our own perspective. So what are, what are the biases of this individual? Like what's their background that maybe makes them think that they think this way? Um, and funding is another, is another important thing because funding affects, uh, can affect the scholarship that people put out, you know, so like, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies, they fund a bunch of studies and they, they keep the ones that say their drugs are good and then they just kind of get rid of the ones that say their drugs are bad. So um, in, the, in the peer review process and in, in academia, they're supposed to declare a conflict of interest uh, if they're writing on a topic. So if they receive funding from this company to evaluate their drug, that's a conflict of interest. And so they have to be able, they have to declare that uh, or, or recuse themselves from writing on that topic. As it pertains to Muslims, uh, I know that there's there are Muslim organizations that have taken money from the government and that money comes with strings attached that they don't just give money to anybody. They give money that supports uh, an agenda that they have so that that's going to be a hit on their credibility if that's proven to be true. I also know that there's a lot of Muslims out there who uh, who do not have a kind of nefarious agenda. They're not taking money from groups, but people will accuse them from, of that. You know, I mean, I've, I've been accused of working for the government and taking money and saying those things, and I've never done any of that stuff. Allah is my witness for that. But people will accuse that. So you can't accuse people unless you have proof. And you can't, you can't say somebody's funded by the government because they say something that you think might be supportive of that government, but there's no... There's no evidence that they took money from the government, so you can't accuse people of that. So this also gets into conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories are entirely built on circumstantial evidence and not direct proof. And so uh, this, I, I also uh, work with the law program here, and that's just that something's really important for the application of law is being able to understand when a case is built on circumstantial evidence and not on direct evidence because circumstantial evidence can, does not prove anything. Uh, I mean, it's, it's supporting. It can't, you can't really convict somebody or you shouldn't convict somebody entirely on a circumstantial case because, you know, flukes happen and, and random things happen, you know, and stuff lines up, but there was nothing behind it. So, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, and actually this, so this is funny. The, when you talk about evidence, it reminded me of something else uh, that I actually wanted to ask you was 
you know, so it's, it's, I'll, I'll backtrack with a small story. So I was, I was called for jury duty. Uh, this was probably like 15 years ago or something. And I made it all the way into the courtroom where they, you know, we saw the plaintiff, they gave us a breakdown of the case, and then they gave us a questionnaire. And one of the questions on the jury questionnaire was, list your favorite TV shows. And I found out later that the reason they asked that was if people watched CSI, like if, you know, it was like CSI Miami, the regular, you know, if they list like their top three favorite shows were CSI, then usually the prosecution would disqualify those jurors because that meant that they felt too self-empowered to evaluate everything else with their own expertise and they wouldn't trust the law process because they would want to see and evaluate everything on their own and they weren't qualified to do so. And that's Mm. something that I see now is that anytime anything comes up online, everyone feels like, well, I should be able to just see all the evidence for everything and then make my judgment or like I deserve to see everything that's available. How does someone cultivate a sense of intellectual humility and a sense of like being, a you know, you don't want to be misled, but you do have to be trusting at a certain point and know your own limitations as well. Hmm. Yeah. Well, how do we cultivate that? Um, well, so I'll, I'll, t- I'll give you an example. So I watch true crime uh, uh, documentaries and it's just kind of a hobby of mine. And um, there was a story about a cop uh, who was accused of, rape and you know it looked like a slam dunk case like you know there was 12 accusers you know they had gps evidence and they had dna evidence and you know he it was just slam dunk like he definitely he was guilty so i watched the whole the, the the documentary of that and then he went to jail you know justice is done we felt good about it um you know case closed right so but then i saw that people um disputed that ruling and then I went back and there was a follow-up to that documentary in the same show. And the GPS evidence was fudged by the, by the prosecutor. Uh, so that, that didn't prove anything, the GPS evidence. The DNA evidence, what they, uh, they, the prosecution made false statements about the DNA evidence that it, it didn't come from sexual fluid, it came from skin and that, you know, that could be uh, innocuous or benign. Um, and then, you know, and then the, the credibility of a lot of the accusers were hammered. And then so you look back at it and the guy's going for appeal. And it's like, well, the case really was not built up very well, you know. So I, I, I don't know how to do this other than just to have experience. Like, we know we need to be humble. Um, you know, we shouldn't look down on people. We should accept the truth from whichever source it comes from, regardless of what we think about the source. So I think we need to know about it in this abstract, abstract sense of what it means to have intellectual humility, but then uh, we need to experience that. You know, when you, you study something and you think you know it, you know, you think you got it, and then someone comes up later and has a whole other side of the story that you never heard, and then you start to reevaluate what you thought actually happened, right? So, uh, I mean, for me, that, that, those things help is when, uh, you know, I had a really strong opinion about something. I thought I really knew it really well. And then somebody came and challenged it. And then I said, oh, okay, well, maybe my opinion wasn't as strong as I thought it was, you know. So I think, I think it takes an experience in life where you've been humbled by somebody. Like, 
you know, you've been not, not that you've been called out, but you've, someone has brought the truth and then you had to accept it from them, even though it contradicted what you thought, like that's going to happen. You know, like we're never going to just have, I'll have the truth. Somebody's going to bring something to us that is going to force us to reevaluate what we thought about whatever topic that is. And then add the more we do that, I think that's how you cultivate it. So knowing it in this abstract sense, and then when you have chances to apply that, you know, where you, where you get to look at two sides of the story and you might have to reevaluate what you thought. And then last thing, and I know, you know, one thing for us as Muslims in particular is out, you know, for me, a lot of things fall back into this analogy of uh, tie the camel and half the wakul, right? And so all these steps that we've talked about, the you know, research methodology, how to identify the experts, all of that falls into the tie the camel. That's doing the effort that's within your capability. What would be your advice maybe for our listeners on implementing the, the, the wakul aspect of it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, what I say is just that, you know, we can always do our, but we always do our best. We want to do our best. We try to do our best and we got gather all the facts and we do research, but we're all limited. We can't research forever. We can't independently research every question that comes up. We have to rely on other people. So I think we just got to do what we can and then uh, we and then we we pick the the authorities that we're going to rely on. We're going to rely on these people for these subjects, and then you just have to be open minded about those things where uh, where there's ambiguity, and uh, just ask Allah to forgive us. I mean, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to make we're going to have opinions that are wrong. We're going to have you know we might have said things about people that were that were not true that we later find out to be not true or even worse, we find out on the day of judgment that they weren't true. So we have, we have to be humble. We have to be continually asking a lot to forgive us. And, uh, but we know that we, as long as we are sincere and we're doing our due diligence and we're um, trying to do our best to follow the truth from whichever source it comes from, as we understand in, in Islam, uh, and then we rely upon Allah. We rely upon Allah's forgiveness. You know, we need we need Allah to forgive us and to be merciful to us, because um, we can't get into Jannah unless Allah forgives us and gives us that mercy. Because our our deeds are never good enough to earn paradise. You know. Yeah. That's my take. Huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all right, I know we're kind of running on time here. Uh, any any final comments you'd like to? leave our listeners with or any other points that we wanted to mention on, on this topic? Uh, yeah. Um, just a couple of miscellaneous points that I didn't get to. Um, uh, we need to, we need to work on critical thinking. And I think the way that can help a way to help us do that is to study formal logic. So, or at least to be aware of fallacies, um, you, you know, how, how, uh, invalid arguments are constructed and how they are rhetorically presented. Have you seen the book of bad arguments? I think I heard of that. I haven't read it. Oh, it's amazing. It's a website that's got is in cartoon form and it lays out all the logical fallacies. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'll look that up. Book of bad ideas. Yeah. 
Yeah. I ended, it so, was so, I ended up buying like the hard the hardback because it was so good. <laughs> oh, awesome! I'll get to the library. That's part of my job is to buy books. So yeah, uh, so critical thinking um, skills, that's, that's really important. Um, and uh, having a respect for diverse perspectives. So um, this is something that we as Western people and maybe as Western Muslims, you know, we, people think the Western view of the world is the universally true view of the world. And I used to think like that when I was growing up and even after I became Muslim, I thought like that. Uh, and then I moved out into other parts of the world and I saw how other people lived and I talked to them and I got their perspective and it really changed uh, my view on a lot of things. And actually it made me more conservative on a number of topics. Um, but uh, everybody is born with this unique perspective and uh, that perspective has value to you. Um, People who are born in different countries, people who are born with different languages, people who are uh, have you know different understandings of various topics. It's important to respect good faith diversity. Okay, when somebody's trying to argue with you in good faith, that's or, or or just discuss with you in good faith. That's something that that is to be valued. So even if we don't agree with that person, we can learn from their perspective. Um, I'm not talking about people who argue in bad faith and once people are, it's clear somebody's arguing in bad faith, you just need to leave them alone. Um, so that was the, le the last bit about the dispositions and then, uh, and then you asked me something about how to authenticate websites. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's a book I cite in the paper um, about misinformation. It's kind of old now because it was in 2012, but they, they said, whenever you see an online resource or you see a website, uh, it's important to ask yourself questions. So who wrote the material? Is it an organization? Is it an individual? Um, what's the history of that organization? You know, there's uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and they have, a, they have a history and they have a particular bias, but we know who they are when they put stuff out. Um, and then you have fake news websites where they don't list the authors and they don't know who's behind it. That's how you tell that they're fake because they don't have anybody that takes responsibility for that information. So if, if the information is fake, who takes responsibility for that? That's the question to ask. Because if it's an academic who gives false information, they could lose their job if they did that knowingly. And if it's journalists do that, they could, they could lose their job if they're misleading people. So somebody takes the fall if the information is wrong, right? Um, but these fake news websites and blogs and you don't know who's wrote, wrote it and it's Abu Fulan who's written something and you don't know that person's name or background or history or anything. It might, it might be, it might be true, but there's no way to know that, right? Or there's no way to know that from the credibility of that person because we just don't know who that person is. We don't know who, what this organization is, right? So it's, it's, it's knowing what they're incentivized by in a sense. And I think this is one thing that's led to the rise of, of the Abu Fulan phenomenon is they're incentivized by just gaining their own audience without, and it's almost a point of uh, bragging like, oh, I'm the one that's hated on by the mainstream. So this gives mm. them more notoriety in a sense. Yeah. And so yeah. putting out more and more uh, extreme views actually gives them more quote unquote authority in a sense. Yeah, because the, the social media is good. Yeah, the, 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 the virility of the inflammatory stuff 
that's how you that's how you go viral is you make people angry or you give you make a really cute like cat video or something but usually it's like people being angry and you're deliberately like inflaming and quote unquote triggering people that's the stuff that goes viral on social media and, and that stuff you know i think a lot of times probably most of the time is does not have a very it's not really argued in good faith it's not really meant to uh, convince people or win people over or persuade people it's just meant to inflame these battle lines that are already drawn and then you you build up your profile that way so uh, i think people, we all need to watch out for that so one one funny thing is so uh so i do a lot of research online like especially if, like i have to write a chutbah or you know prepare something so i'll go on and the thing is i'm very very weary of doing islamic research online like I absolutely hate it. And it's at the point now where the research I do online, it's 90% to find like the wording of a hadith, right? Or the Arabic text or find a reference that then I can take and I can go and look it up in a book, a book or take it to a teacher or something like that, where I have a more, you know, trusting uh, resource. And your website kept popping up every time I would search for stuff. And I'm like, okay, and I'm very, again, I'm very weird because I've, you know, I'll be looking for hadith and I'll find like a random website that's made by a different sect of Islam altogether or something, you know, things that you can't trust. So I'm always kind of on the edge and yours kept popping up and I'm like, who is this person? Like, <laughs> why do they have all these narrations? But And then I figured out like, oh, okay, this is you know, so-and-so from Yakin Institute. Okay, then I was like, all right, now I can go to it more regularly. But yeah, first I came upon it on Google and I was like, all right, the first like 20 or 30 times I was taking it, I'm like, okay, this looks legit, but I need to double and triple check it before I use it. Uh, but that actually might be a good, a good chance if you don't mind sharing your website and maybe even a little bit as to like how you, because I think it's, it's unique in the sense that there aren't really a lot of resources like that online anymore. There used to always be... Um, Back in the day, there was the USC MSA had a Hadith search database. Yeah. Had like Bukhari Muslim and stuff like that. And then sure. now it morphed into sunnah.com. Sunnah uh, but yours was unique because you had the Arabic text, English, and sometimes even I think brief commentary. And then also things that weren't necessarily Hadith, but maybe statements from companions and things like that. So it was very useful. So maybe if you don't mind sharing like your website and you know how and why you started that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so uh, it's abuabinilyas.com, and then um, that's the site where I write articles, and then you can find a link in the header, uh, slash daily hadith online, that's the hadith site. So uh, there's kind of two sites, and then the hadith is within the bigger site. Um, so I'll tell you how that started. So uh, when I went into library school, it was 2010, and I was... Um, I think 26 or 27 years old and I just got on Facebook and uh, I was just finding this thing out. So I was like, Oh, I want to share Hadith. You know, I really like Hadith. So I had a Facebook page that I was sharing Hadith and I was like, you know, I post these things and then I can't pick them up anymore. And like, I, need, I should have a website where I just put the post there and then I can just copy and paste it whenever I want. So I got the website and I set that up. I went through several iterations and at first I was doing, Bukhari Muslim, actually, and at first I didn't have my name on it. It was just anonymous. Uh, and then, but I continued to work on it. And then, it, you know, it occurred to me, I thought this was, this was true, that 
we shouldn't really take Islamic content from online unless it's, you know, I think taking a thief from sunnah.com is fine, but like, you know, there should be a name attached to it. You should know who translated it or who, uh, you know, said this or whatever. So then I started to go by Abu Amin Ilyas because my daughter is Amina and Ilyas is like the name I took when I became Muslim. Um, so I put, you know, I had my name on there and then, um, as it got bigger, I put more and more Hadith on there and then I started to put Hadith from different books. And then, uh, I discovered this website, drawer.net, where you can look up the gradings of Hadith. And there's also Mektaba Shamila where all these Arabic books and you can verify all that stuff. So got more and more, um, uh, detailed, put more and more stuff out there. And then, uh, my... As my professional life progressed, my Islamic studies work that I was doing sort of on the side kind of merged uh, into the position I am now as a Middle East Studies librarian, and I had a, I got a master's degree in Islamic studies, and so so that was the origin of it, and then um, that's why I have two names, by the way, so uh, or why I put two names out there because it kind of I was was writing in two different streams, and then they kind of came together. And this um, is maybe a question I should have probably opened the podcast with. What does a Middle East librarian do? I think it's safe to say you're officially the first person I've ever met with that title. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, well, I, I have a general job in the library where I buy books and I teach students and I help with research projects and things like that. And I'm also, uh, so the students will come in Middle East studies uh, and they need help with their research and I will help them and I'll help them find sources and how to cite their papers and uh, how to do research and things like that for what, what is called area studies. So, so you study the Middle East and then uh, Iran and Turkey and North Africa and um, being able to find sources on those and then how do you construct a research paper and that kind of thing. And then I'm uh, I'm on the I'm a board member of the Middle Eastern Librarians Association. Um, I'm the webmaster, so I administrate their website, and uh, we have a conference every year. And um, I've spoken at it a couple times and just talk about uh, what we do in the field. So basically, we're there to support the academics in Middle Eastern studies um, who study it from an area studies perspective. Okay. If that makes sense. Awesome. And uh, for our listeners, where can they best connect with you or follow your work online? Anything else other than the, other than the website? Uh, so uh, I have like a tag or I have a, like a slug or whatever you call it on Yakin. So you can click on me. If you find me Yakin Institute, Justin Parrott, you can find that and click, uh, click on that. And there's all my uh, papers and videos that I've done for them. I have my main website. Um, and the Hadith website, I have a Facebook page, I have a Twitter, I have a YouTube channel, and I have an Instagram. I just got on Instagram, I'm trying to, still trying to figure that out, but I think if you want to connect with me, uh, you can give me a message on Facebook, you can message my personal page, or message me on uh, my Daily Hadith Online Facebook page, uh, you can also message me if you're on Twitter, so that's actually how Sheikh Omar uh, and me got connected was, uh, on Twitter, um, Twitter message. So, um, I try to check all that stuff and I try to respond to everybody. Um, I do get a lot of, uh, spam for lack of a better, a better word. Um, you know, I get like seven or eight messages a day and 
a lot of it is just content that's like forwarded to me. Um, I'm like, okay, thanks, you know, uh, but you can get me there. Uh, and, uh, uh, I have an email address. I think it's on my Facebook page, uh, my I'll, website. I'll, but I'll just, I'll link, I'll link all these up in the, in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Justin at abuamanilias.com is my website email address. So you can, you can, uh, contact me there as well. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm also on LinkedIn. All right. Yeah, all, the places, right? all the places. All right. So we'll put all that in. Uh, just like a care for, for joining us and look forward to talking to you again, inshallah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, good to talk to you. Thank you uh, so much for the good conversation. Alhamdulillah. All right, guys. That is a wrap. If you enjoyed the episode, uh, please do share it with a friend, uh, share it on social media, all that good stuff. And it really helps out a lot if you rate and review the podcast in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever player that you're in. See you guys next time.